All right, everyone. So we are live today. Today I got Mike DeVito with us. Mike is a pretty cool guy. I mean, he's an NFL veteran, so that's pretty cool. But more recently now, he's been really digging into philosophy. He just completed or he's completing his second master's degree in philosophy. So thanks for coming on, Mike. Of course, Zach. Thanks for having me back, man. How you been? I've been doing really good. I've been doing really good. How about yourself? Good, good. I've been seeing a lot of the content you're putting out. It looks great, man. Every new day I get an email from you with new stuff. So I'm happy that everything's going well on your end. I'm trying. I appreciate it. So obviously today we're going to talk about uh, Mike's recent dissertation on climate change. I read it a few days ago and I was just amazed. Like it's so, there's just so many uh, great things in it. So before, before we get into that, just tell us just a little bit about yourself, Mike, and basically how you got to where well, you just wrote this big dissertation on climate change. Yeah, so I guess real quick background, uh, I'm originally from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I went to college at the University of Maine. Um, like you said, played football, played football there at Maine, and I played nine years in the NFL. And uh, I retired in 2016, and uh, ever since I became a Christian, God had, uh, I always, I phrase it sort of like lit this fire inside of me for all things academic. Uh, and so, you know, throughout my time in the NFL, I knew when football was done, I was going to make that transition to the academic world. And so, um, yeah, so in 2016, I, uh, I uh, started uh, my master's degree at the University of, or uh, Houston Baptist University. And then I finished there in 2018 and then went right to uh, the University of Edinburgh in the UK. So distance programs. Um, uh, so I still live up here in Maine. I have my wife, Jesse, and my three boys up here. Um, and so, yeah, so... Um, did the, did just finished up the program at the University of Edinburgh. It was a ton of fun. Uh, I really learned so much. And so now I'm trying to get the resume together and get into a PhD program, keep keep this train rolling. That's exciting. That's really exciting. And I wish you luck and we'll all be praying for that. So Thank you, bro. why don't we talk a little bit about your dissertation on climate change? So there's a, a lot of great stuff in there. So I guess we'll just start off kind of like a general question. Um, what is climate change? If you could describe it in 60 seconds or 30 seconds. Yeah, so that's a good question, right? So climate change um, is just that. It's, it's, it's different, you know, whether it be uh, heating up or cooling uh, of uh, global temperatures um, uh, or in, in not just temperature, but uh, however the climate's reacting. So sometimes it could be increased uh, severe weather or increase um, in, or decrease in flooding. Um, so changes to uh, the Earth's climate and, and things going on in the Earth's you know, climate system. Um, what we've seen and what scientists will are, are, are saying is that over the course of the, since the industrial, you know, beginning of the industrial age, um, climate change or, or global warming, the increase in average global temperature um, has, or average global temperature has been increasing and it's the result of human causes, right? So uh, man-made, uh, causes specifically fossil fuels uh, that are causing this increase in global temperatures, uh, and so the there's a there's a number of different ways to look at that data uh, and how to interpret it. And is it a good thing that uh, uh, temperature is rising? Is it a bad thing? Is it rising too fast to the point where we're going to have these catastrophic uh, environmental things happening to our our, our uh, world or um, is it a good thing? Is it causing increased vegetation and uh, and uh, our fossil fuels allowing us to do things that we could never do before? And so 
there's, a, there's a really cool debate over um, how to interpret this data and what we should do moving forward given the climate change data that we have. Uh, but the first thing I really was interested in, and one of the things that surprised me when I got into this is how complex, I mean, I guess it's, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but how complex the climate science is. I mean, it is just, you start digging and you, you get a little bit into it and you just see how many different things um, scientists are taking into account when trying to figure out uh, how, uh, you know, how fossil fuels and how the increase in greenhouse gases um, affect the earth's climate. And it's not as straightforward as I would have thought. There are a lot of factors that go into it, um, a lot of different things that scientists have to account for, uh, but it really an interesting, interesting topic. And so the thought behind the essay was something, or the dissertation was along the lines of uh, basically applying Pascal's wager to uh, the climate change debate, right? So Pascal argued that um, reason, uh, the, the prudential choice when it comes to theism and atheism is to believe that God exists, right? Because if you believe that God exists and he does, you have an infinite gain. Uh, if you believe in God exists and he doesn't, well, you know, you have somewhat of a loss. You went to church and did things like that, but nothing compared to if you don't believe that God exists and he does, now you have an infinite loss, right? So the rational choice is to believe that God exists roughly. I mean, obviously that's a crude uh, layout, but that's basically the idea. And so uh, this idea that to apply this this Pascal's wager, this decision theory to climate change came from my uh, my mentor, uh, Tyler McNabb, who's a, uh, just an excellent philosopher of religion and, and somebody I look up to, really my best friend and uh, uh, my mentor, academic mentor. And so he had, he had basically laid this idea on my lap. He said, yo, man, there's no uh, environmental wager out there. Like we have to take this idea, take this Pascal's wager, this decision theory and apply it to the climate change debate. Uh, and so that's what we did. And, and I went into this with an open mind, um, trying to figure out, you know, okay, well, what does reason, uh, what is the most rational prudential choice given the evidence? Um, uh, so yeah, so there, you know, a lot there and it's, uh, so yeah, so that was the, that was the project, right? Let's look at the climate change uh, evidence, look at what scientists are saying on both sides, whether it be, uh, they're, they're really two, two main camps when it comes to how to interpret the climate change data. You have uh, alarmists who say, uh, this is really bad, right? This is, this, this global warming is, this, this temperature increase is happening too fast. And there are a lot of bad things that can and probably will happen if we don't stop this, if we don't do something to slow this down. Uh, and then you have the group on the other side of the debate called lukewarmers, and they're saying, no, either they're saying the warming isn't a bad thing, or they're saying the warming isn't happening at the rates that most scientists think it is. And so we, we shouldn't worry about it. In fact, there's a lot of good that comes from this increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. You know, obviously the use of fossil fuels helps developing country, helps everybody, you know. Um, but then there's this uh, CO2 fertilization, right? So you have uh, these increase in gre greenhouse gases, um, this, these raised CO2 levels that actually make uh, vegetation grow faster. So I can't remember the exact numbers, but there's something like a continent's worth of new vegetation over the past 100 years because of this increase 
in greenhouse gases. Obviously, increased vegetation means more food um, uh, and all of that. So, so yeah, so it was a, it was a good debate, and I, I, uh, I tried to get, go in as unbiased as I could uh, and weigh it out, and it seemed like the most rational choice, given the evidence, was to assume that the alarmist position was correct, right? Because we have to make a decision here under uncertainty, we, meaning we, we don't know what exactly the future holds. Uh, we don't know how this is going to play out, but we have to give it our best guess because uh, just like with Pascal's wager, the consequences of being right or being wrong are massive. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we need, to, uh, we need to be as rational as we, as we can making this decision um, and so, yeah, so I came to the conclusion, given the evidence that the, assuming that the alarmist position is correct and then acting, uh, acting on or, or future actions being based off, uh, our belief that the alarm and our alarmist position is correct is the most rational way to proceed. Yeah. I remember I was reading and you, I think you wrote, I think it was like 25% of the GDP could be impacted. Like global GDP if um, the alarmist position is true and we don't act. Is that correct? Yeah, it was a massive number. I think it was 20%. Um, there was a Stern study done in 2007, uh, an economist, a group of economists led by Stern. I, I can't remember his first name now. It's killing me. Uh, done in 2007 that basically tried to ca calculate the cost benefits uh, to the economy. Um over the course of uh, all these projections are over the next hundred years because they're saying we, we should have a doubling of, of CO2 in the atmosphere if we keep going at our current rates uh, by 2065, I believe. So all of this is done in the next, you know, whatever, 40, 50, 60 years, um, looking that far down the road. And these economists came to the conclusion that if we act as if lukewarming is correct and the alarmist view is correct, it we're, the the consequences are basically twenty percent of global GDP lost to try to make things right if we can do it at all, um, and it would cost one percent of global global GDP now to um, to stop or to make to make changes to stop global warming uh, for, uh, from increasing at the rate that it is, uh, and so obviously that played a massive role in the decision matrix because you're going to assign a much higher disutility to 20% of, uh, you know, loss in global GDP, which is such a massive, un incomprehensible number. I mean, that's a, that's a world, that's a world changing number compared to 1% GDP, which is obviously still a massive number, uh, but magnitudes lower than 20%. And so that, that was a, that played a big role in the decision matrix. Um, now, the, the background of this, I should have said at the beginning, is obviously I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not an economist. Um, and so one of the biggest or a substantial section in this paper is why we should trust consensus, specifically scientific consensus. And, and I would saying in that encompassing economic consensus as well, um, because as a as a person who's not a climate scientist, uh, and who's not a, an economist, I have two options, right? I can become those things, which take years and years to do, or, or, I, can, or I can look at the epistemic status of consensus and then come to the conclusion that that's high, that I think we should, we should put a high value of epistemic status to scientific consensus. Um, 
uh, meaning we should trust what the scientists are saying here and then move uh, from there. Um, so yeah, so, but, but yeah, so I say that to say, I can't give you an economic argument for why it's 20% versus, well, obviously that's a very complex thing, but it seems to be confirmed, not just in the Stearns report, but there were a number of meta-analysis done afterwards that seemed to confirm what Stern said that I cited in the paper. So I think this is a really interesting thing here that we have that I want to ask you about. So there's a lot of people, I think, within the Christian the Christian realm who would say that we shouldn't necessarily trust these scientists um, or the consensus because these are the, they'll say, hey, these people that are saying, you know, this uh, alarmism is true. Um, they're the same people who would say evolution is true, that there is no God, um, things like that. So how would you respond to a Christian who's just skeptical of climate science? Yeah, there, there are two claims. So let's take the two that you made, right? So you have a scientist who says evolution is true and that there is no God. Um, I think the, the first one I would trust scientific consensus on. The, the latter, I wouldn't, right? Because the latter is a metaphysical claim, right? The first, the, the former is a scientific claim. And so scientific consensus is unique in the sense that, and there's a great quote in here, but I never thought of it like this, but it's really, it's true. Um, scientific consensus is a byproduct, right? So scientists don't get together and say, okay, how can we come to a consensus on this issue? Right, it's it's independently done research um, that's peer reviewed. Obviously, there's no authorities, um, and then consensus is a byproduct of that independently done research. And so, when you look at uh, the IPP, the IPCC report, the International Panel of Climate Change, right? They, I, I can't remember the number. Uh, I mean, basically, just thousands of different climate change models done independently, right, by different scientists across the globe. And they can't, they all over the past 60 years have basically all come to the same conclusion that uh, given a doubling in, in atmospheric CO2, uh, you'll, you'll, we, they predict about an increase of 1.5 to 6 degrees in average global temperature. Uh, you know, that's a big range. I mean, not likely 1.5, not, not likely 6, but within that range, all thousands of these global climate change models have fallen within that range. Um, and so again, this is, this is done independently uh, and these conclusions have come through. Now, now, metaphysical consensus is a totally different thing, right? We're, we're, not, we're not, there's no, I guess I gotta be careful what I say here, um, but I, metaphysical consensus isn't an empirical thing really, right? You know what I mean? You have all kinds mm -hmm. of, of philosophical metaphysical views. Um, and so to, to draw the conclusion that God doesn't exist from uh, a scientific claim is gonna take more of a philosophical argument. And so, uh, and I don't think, and I, and I think that's, that's wrong. I mean, the arguments I've seen, I, I don't find convincing. I think there is good metaphysical evidence, you know, to think that God exists. Um, but right, but they're, they're two separate, they're two separate things. And so, um, so yeah, so scientific consensus uh, is unique, and I think it. I think it should be. I think it should be trusted. But but when we draw metaphysical and philosophical conclusions from that scientific consensus, uh, that's a whole. That's a whole another story. Mm -hmm. Totally. So next thing I want to go here, just talk about a little bit is so in your 
dissertation, you have a lot, you talk about, you do, basically you put all these probabilities in there and you calculate, um, you end up giving like different, I'm trying to put it on my brain right now, but you give the, you assign values to basically, you active as if alarmism is true and it turns out that lukewarming is true or things like that. So could you talk a little bit about that model, what you tried to do there and what you kind of found out? Yeah, so the so the decision matrix was broken up into two. There were two different um, utility um, values, two the utility, um, uh, yeah, utility values that we that I calculated. So you had the economic the economic aspect of it, right? So what is it, what utility or or disutility are we going to assign to you know twenty percent loss in global GDP compared to one percent loss GDP, right? And so then that would be a proportional utility, I assigned a negative, I just came up with a range, right? Negative five to positive five uh, being the, you know, disutility to utility range, positive utility, expected, you know, expected utility. Um, and so obviously, like I said, when you're doing a cost benefit analysis, 20% of global GDP is really, really bad. <laughs> you know, 1% of 1% loss of, of global GDP is bad. But 20% loss of global GDP is catastrophic, right? So you're going to assign a much higher number to that, uh, or, or much, much, yeah, higher disutility to uh, that economic loss. Uh, now, if lukewarming turns out to be correct, and we act as if alarmism is true, we're, we, we are we are at a loss, right? Not only are we at a loss because we stopped using fossil fuels and the vegetation, but you're also economically you're at a 1% GDP loss because you wouldn't have spent. That money, you wouldn't have spent. You know, you wouldn't have spent all that to stop uh, global warming, and so there's a loss there as well. Um, so all that was, you know, do the do the uh, proportions there, and that that all figured into the scale. And then there was a social cost, right? So not just an economic cost, but what does this look like uh, to human life in general, right? How does this affect societies? And so if the alarmist view was correct, right? And this is the same thing. We were going to assign a utility minus five to plus five. Uh, minus five being the worst, plus five being the best. Um, and so if the alarmist view was correct, within 100 years, I mean, we're, we got massive problems. Now, remember, this is scientific consensus on, on at least the, the increase in temperature. Now, there's also scientific consensus on, um, and I don't know the exact numbers as far as the number of scientists who agree, but I, I'm, I'm almost certain that there's scientific consensus on the uh, the fact that if we get above an average global temperature increase of two degrees, we're going to have these major catastrophic problems, right? So whether it be sea level rise that displaces uh, communities that are below, you know, that are below sea level, um, increase in droughts, increase in severe weather, uh, all of that, right? So the alarmist view, if the alarmist view is correct, and we don't act as if alarmism is true. We're again not just just like the minus you know the, the minus five disutility when it comes to twenty percent GDP loss. Uh, we're going to have a massive loss in uh, social costs, right? The, the the social cost to life on Earth, not just not just human life, right, but all animal life uh, is going to be major, right? So you have um, ocean acidification is one that's uh, is one of these things that doesn't just affect uh, human life, it affects biological life, right? So you have uh, an increase in, in the chem acidification, I right? say so an increase, a change in the chemistry in the ocean, 
that scientists are seeing has major effect, especially on uh, animal life that has shells, right? That has, you know, snails or things like that, things that have shells, uh, that, that uh, it really hinders their ability to grow their shells, right? And so you have an evolutionary thing because now they become more, uh, they become easier prey uh, and evolution can't adapt quick enough to, to help them. And now the whole food chain is affected because of this ocean acidification fairly quickly. Uh, and so again, so if the alarmist view is correct, you have a massive loss. Now, if you act as if alarmism is correct and it turns out lukewarming is correct, you also have a loss. Uh, because again, with lukewarming, you're gonna have to cut fossil fuels. Uh, or, or with alarmism, you're gonna have to cut the use of fossil fuels. And the lukewarmer is gonna say, look, this is gonna have major consequences. I'll, I'll read this quote that I used from Matt Ridley, um, who's a prominent um, lukewarmer and a really, really smart guy. Uh, but I thought that this was, this was really encompassed their view very well. He says this, speaking of fossil fuels, he says, what have fossil fuels done for us? Apart from a new continent's worth of green vegetation, and removing the need to cook over a wood fire, the smoke of which is one of the biggest killers in the world, dispatching over 3 million people a year, according to the World Health Organization, and removing the need to fetch wood from the forest and dismantle an ecosystem in doing so. Yes, but apart from ending starvation, enabling kids to go to school, refrigerating vaccines, boosting literacy, pumping water, reducing the pressure on forests, reducing indoor air pollution, and creating 14% more green vegetation, apart from all of this, what have fossil fuels done for us? So very, so very tongue-in-cheek in how he, how he said that. Um, but so obviously, it, cutting back on fossil fuels comes with a cost, right? A social cost. We again, we have to change society fairly drastically if we're going to act as if alarmism is true, because we really have to cut back on these fossil fuels to stop the increase in CO two, greenhouse gases, and the increase in global temperature, average global temperature. Um, and so again, so these costs played into this decision matrix. I know I'm rambling on here, but um, but yeah. So, but at the end of the day, just as with Pascal's wager, when it came to uh, belief in God versus disbelief in God, it just was much more rational to believe uh, and to act as if the alarmist position was true, given the fact that scientific consensus is on that side uh, overwhelmingly. And the fact that the consequences are so severe. If if we were to act as if lukeism, lukewarming is true and alarmism ends up being true, we have massive problems. Massive problems. And I thought that outweighed the uh, I thought that outweighed the argument on the other side that if we act as if uh, alarmism is true and lukewarming ends up being true, you know, we definitely have a loss, but it's significantly less than the opposite scenario. Yeah, 100 percent. So just got a few more minutes here. I want to ask you a couple of kind of from some questions that you probably hear from Christians who are more skeptical and would probably take a more lukewarm position. Uh, We addressed one of them, but I just have a couple more here. So how would you respond to a Christian who would say God is in control? It's not my problem to worry about global warming. Yeah, it's an it's an it's an interesting objection. And I I tried to deal with it, I think, uh, a little bit in the paper. I didn't get too much into theological implications, but but there was some. Um, I think that there's good theological reason to think that God has uh, given us dominion over the earth and, and asked us to care for it. Um, 
And so while I do think God is in control, uh, you know, obviously that would mean we can just start nuking the planet, right? I mean, we just started, let's just say we just started shooting off nuclear bombs, right? Just blowing up everything. Now, obviously that would come to a cost of life, but, but I mean, it would destroy, you know, think about it. Let's say it wouldn't, let's say we could, we could shoot off bombs that wouldn't hurt people, but would just totally destroy the environment. Right, we wouldn't. We would say that was immoral, right? I mean, I don't know why anyone would want to do that anyway. But even if somebody would, we would say, well, no, you can't just go and destroy the environment uh, like that. I mean, that, that's just unethical. And I think that there's good theological reason to think that uh, as well. I think God tells us to care for um, care for the earth. Um, and so, yeah. So I think that uh, again eschatology and looking at the end times is another kind of objection that plays off of this, right? Well, we kind of, we want this thing to end or God's in control. We, who cares when it ends? Uh, he's going to, you know, it'll end when God wants it to. Uh, I, I still, I think eschatology is way too esoteric and, uh, um, uh, I mean, you go into any Christian bookstore and you go to the eschatology, the end time section, you're going to find 50 different books with 50 different interpretations of how we're supposed to understand Revelation and, and things like that. Uh, and so I just don't think it's a, again, it's, it's, a, it's a mini wager, right? It's a mini wager. And I just think even theologically, uh, given how unclear eschatology is, um, we should still assume that, again, God wants us to care for the earth. And we shouldn't go out of our way to destroy it just to get to the end, you know, get to the end, to the end of time. Yeah, it's funny because the third question I had right there is, what would you say to the Christian who says the end times are near? It's not our issue. But I mean, yeah. I think you. Let me read you this other that. quote. Thomas Odin uh, has a great, uh, a great quote on this that I quoted in the, um, uh, uh, in the in the uh, dissertation here, he says, "Time-bound human reasoning is ill-equipped to speak of what is not yet. No human eye can penetrate the future. Reason only makes conjectures. Present reasoning proceeds on the basis of assumptions about time and space, e not easily applied to eternity." Right? Um, and so on. He goes on here. Eschatology may be taught falsely so as to detract from the importance of this life or foster the illusion of escape from human responsibility. But rightly conceived, the teaching of the end of history is the teaching about the momentous meaning in history. And I think that's right. I think eschatology, broadly speaking, is trying to tell us that there is meaning and purpose to life, right? But not that we're going to know the day or the time or the hour when uh, it's going to come, right? So that's maybe that's a, I know some Christians probably think that's a cop out, right? It's, it allows me to just skim through Revelation without having to uh, come to any firm conclusions. But uh, I think I think that is the point. I think Odin's right. I think you know ultimately the point God's trying to get across is that uh, from beginning to end, God has a plan, God has a purpose, and God has meaning to this entire uh, this entire show, this entire thing we call life. Um, but we shouldn't be so uh, um, so maybe prideful to think we have eschatology pinned down, and from that we can escape human responsibility for the climate and things like that because we know when the end times are coming. And I mean, again, you, you see, even Jesus says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Right. So, I mean, even Jesus took a humble approach to uh, eschatology and the time. And, and uh, I think we should do the same thing. 
Uh, but I'm open. I, I theologically, I'm open to be persuaded. Uh, there was a lot that went into this, and the the one thing that was most disappointing, I think, at the end, was I could only skim uh, the climate science, the uh, philosophy, the theology, because you know it was a, it was a shorter project. Uh, and I, I wrote this a Facebook post. How much respect I have for my friends with PhDs because this took a lot just to write this eight thousand word paper. You know, to write a hundred thousand words over the cost of five years, uh, I can't. Uh, I'm excited to start that process, but I can't imagine what that's like. So, but yeah, but all of that, and I should have started with this: the disclaimer that I'm I'm open to be persuaded about any of this, uh, and to you know to have my mind changed. I'm not dogmatic about it. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, we'll wrap. We'll start to wrap things up here. Um, I don't. Can you read the live chat? Can you see the live chat on your screen? Let me see here. Live comments. <laughs> yeah. There was just there was a funny one that I saw. I'll put it up on the screen. It says, "You were a beast on my Madden mobile team. Cool to see you're a Christian and a philosopher." Oh, now. oh thank you, Mason. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've I've heard from a lot of people that I was much better on Madden than I was in real life. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm glad I was helping somebody, even if it's in the virtual world, helping somebody out. But no, I appreciate that. Um, someone asked. So, if someone wants to read your dissertation, where, when can they do that? Yeah, that's a good question. It's so right now it's it's being graded. I just submitted it. Um, I can probably let me just check with the with the college, but I can I can send it to you, Zach. I, I, you should be able to post it. I mean, it's not a peer reviewed thing, um, obviously. So so take it with a take it with a grain of salt right now. Hopefully, one day I will get it published. We're we're in the works of doing that, but uh, but yeah, um, uh, I'll, let me just double check with the university and see what the rules are for for putting that out before it gets graded. And then, uh, and then maybe Zach, you could post it on your site. I'll put it to my my website as well. Yeah, I'll be sure to post it once we get the green light. I'd hate to see that whole thing go down in flames if we posted it early. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Just start over. Yeah. Start over. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, all right. Um, if any, if someone wants to follow you, what you're doing, where should they where should they follow you? Yeah, I'm at Mike DeVito seventy uh, on Twitter, and then um, I'm I accept most of the Facebook requests. So. My, uh, Especially if they're friends with you, Zach, I'll see that. So uh, Mike DeVito on or on Facebook, Mike DeVito on Facebook. Uh, yeah, those were those are my two social media things. All right, awesome. I just want to say thank you so much, Mike, for coming on. Thank you, every guys, everyone, ugh, everyone for listening. So have a great night, and we'll see you later. Awesome, Zach. Thanks.